Welcome back to another Serving of the Dole Whip and Dreams podcast. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and this week we take a deep dive into a financial flop, but a cult classic in the 2002 animated film, almost 20 years in the making, Treasure Planet. Like many Disney films before it, Treasure Planet didn't just begin production one day with little development before it. The film was first pitched in 1985 by two men who would go on to co-write, co-produce, and co-direct the film, Ron Clements and John Musker, while they were pitching a film called The Little Mermaid. You guys have heard a lot about them this season. Their project was originally scrapped by Michael Eisner because of a proposed Treasure Island-themed Star Trek sequel film in development at Paramount. For my confused Trekkies out there, this film never happened and would be replaced by the film that we know now as The Voyage Home. Clements and Musker tried again after the release of Aladdin, but Jeffrey Katzenberg, deep enemy of the pod, just wasn't interested in the project. Finally, the guys complained to Roy Disney, who ended up siding with them, and it was agreed in 1995 that if they directed Hercules, the company would produce and release Treasure Planet at a later date. For more about that, don't forget to check out our episode of Hercules with our guest, the Gay Gaston. Treasure Planet was the company's most ambitious film to date and took over four years to complete. Initially, the project kept being delayed so technology could improve to allow more dynamic moving camera directions and style. And in 2000, animation began with a crew of over 350 crew members. During its final release, over a thousand workers were credited, with 600 of them being animators and technology folks. The film was a gorgeous combination of classic hand-drawn animation with new digital components. The team drew inspiration from several iconic historical figures to help build these characters, with Jim taking inspiration from James Dean and Silver from Hollywood actor who played the role, Warris Berry, and each character was given some characteristics of the actor voicing them. Maquettes, or, or small statues for each character, were used by animators for consistency, and it was a tradition since Pinocchio for the animated studio pictures. Using a program called Deep Canvas, which was first used in Tarzan, they were able to build digital sets in 360 degrees to help move and stage each scene. This was combined with the ideas of painting images with depth perception so that the crew could just drop the camera in digitally anywhere on the set and maneuver it, and you could get a shot as you would if it were a live-action film. They combined digital and hand-drawn techniques for some character traits, like Silver's arm. Clements and Musker developed what they called the 70-30 rule for the style and art of this film. So this means 70% should look like the traditional 19th century as we know it historically, and 30% should look like science fiction. This was why the aspects like the Ethereum were created, because it was thought the characters in spacesuits would just lose the romanticism of the traditional 19th century story. The film as a whole takes inspiration from the 1911 illustrated version of Treasure Island, the cast was absolutely out of this world and featured talent like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, David Hyde Pierce, Martin Short, Roscoe Brown, Emma Thompson, and Patrick McGugan in his final film role. Any problems aside, the film was set up to be a worldwide success with an initial budget of over $140 million. But on its opening day, the world didn't crowd to the theater to see Treasure Planet like the company hoped. It ultimately only grossed 38 million domestically and about 110 million worldwide. 
And while it would garner a 2003 Oscar nomination for Animated Best Picture, what went wrong? For the audience at home, Treasure Island was a well-known film property and novel, and it would be Disney's third use of the story if you count Muppet Treasure Island, which I don't know why you wouldn't. And it wouldn't even be the first time that the world saw a space-age Treasure Island after the release of the 1985 film uh, from France, Treasure Island in Space. So again, I ask, what went wrong? Everything we could find points to its opening weekend and the two movies that opened alongside it and a contract that would not permit them from changing that release date. By 2002, the world was wrapped up in Harry Potter fever, so you would understand the apprehension of Treasure Planet opening alongside the second film in the franchise, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and a sequel for the Disney company themselves, The Santa Claus 2. So again, you're asking yourself, Maddie, why didn't they just change the release date? I mean, it's the Christmas season, surely November 27th didn't have to be the release date, even though I'm sure that was Thanksgiving weekend. Well, as all of my 90s babies remember, Disney movie releases meant huge merchandise tie-ins with everyone from Mattel and Hasbro to Kraft and fast food. But one particular contract locked them into that release weekend and they could not move. McDonald's. The fast food titan made it so that legally, with their contract, Disney could not change the release date, so they could not avoid the release alongside of Harry Potter. Studio chairman Richard Cook looked back and felt that maybe they didn't do enough to entice the audience to want to come. So essentially, their initial trailers were serious and dramatic and dangerous, and they didn't showcase any of the fun side of the movie. I mean, prior to its release, a sequel was actually planned, sending Jim and Silver on an adventure to stop a prison break from a Willem Dafoe-voiced Iron Beard. But despite a mediocre box office and more favorable home video sales, the sequel was scrapped. We here assume that the final nail in the coffin was the less-than-stellar critical reception for the film. I mean, Ebert gave it 2.5 out of 4 stars and found the th space theme to be gimmicky, while A.O. Scott of the New York Times said it was not much of a movie and just brainless mechanical picture. Do you guys agree? Because we don't. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. We've made difficult decisions. And there are still more ahead of us. Two people aren't enough to save the galaxy. We need the toughest. Smartest. Deadliest allies. We need you. We need you to join us. And listen to Reignite. A certain point of view podcast about storytelling. Love. And Mass Effect. Join us every other Thursday as we fight for the fate of an entire galaxy. You can find us everywhere you get your podcasts or at certainpov.com slash reignite. We're counting on you. We should go. Welcome back, matey. <clears throat> Welcome back, everyone. Uh, <laughs> on the show today, I have a dynamic, dynamic performer who I am so, so excited to have with me today, Gabe Martinez. Gabe, welcome to the show. Finally, I'm so excited. Bitch, all you had to do was ask. 
You were on though. my list of people because uh, a little spoiler: uh, Gabe's amazing wife Emily has already been on the show. She was uh, my guest for Rescuers Down Under, and now I have Gabe, and then maybe I'll have one with both of you together. Yes, we're both total dreamers. We're stands. I love we're it. Excited. I love it. Never miss an episode. And I would well, I would love in a little bit. I'm going to make you talk about your first time at Disney, which was this year, uh, going to the park. So we're the gonna, tender age of we're, <laughs> Hey, listen, I didn't go until I was in my 20s the first time. So, like, it's... Uh, but, so, Gabe, why don't you tell everyone at home a little bit about yourself and how Disney has played into your upbringing and kind of your programming as an artist? I would love to. Um, I'm a lifelong Disney fan, lifelong performer. I can't really do anything else. Uh, I've been performing professionally since I was about 11. Um... My father was a band leader. I performed at his band. I started getting into shows and stuff. I didn't think I would be a theater person until high school. I was injured one football season, and the director pounced on me um, in the off-season of to be in Annie Get Your Gun. And never looked back. I played a little bit of fo- football in college, but ended up just studying theater. Um, out of school, I got a job on cruise ships. And I did that on and off for about seven years, um, production singer, band singer. Uh, those shows were very top 40, not mm-hmm. very theatery, but I took a couple breaks from cruise ships and I did a couple of national tours. I did some regional theater. I did some off-off New York stuff. So I'm just kind of an all-over-the-map performer, anything and anything on stage, singing and dancing in front of people. That's all I really do for a living. Uh, as far as Disney goes, uh, I wasn't allowed to watch TV when I was little. We watched, I watched football with my dad, and I watched Disney movies. And that was it, 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 it. That was all we did. Um, I've pretty much memorized the entire Disney catalog, every lyric of every song. You were talking earlier about my first trip to Disney, <clears throat> which is not, I, that's got an asterisk next to it, because my parents took me to Disneyland when I was like four. But I don't really remember it or anything. So my first real Disney experience was as a 32-year-old, wanting to go my whole life, never being able to scrape together the money to do it properly. Mm-hmm. But my wife, Emily, and I finally, after getting off our last our last ship, after we retired from cruise ships, getting off our last trip in Tampa, we rented a car, drove up to Orlando, and met our friends, Frank and Kelly, there. And the four of us did Disney together. We did five days. And we got the real hookup. Because Kelly's mom works at Disney as a concierge. So she, like, yeah. So that's, we would never. That's the deal. That's right. the deal. You did. With fast passes <laughs> for everything, all the insider information, skip this, do this twice, everything. This is um, her job is to create, like, uh, bespoke Disney vacations for actual famous people. And we, and we just got the hook up. And we were spoiled, of course. I can never do Disney like a normal person again <laughs> but it was it was everything it was everything it was meant to be and like I'm gonna get on my soapbox here for a second because there's lots of Karens on the internet complaining about childless millennials at Disney and look I know on the surface that Disney is for kids but it's not it's for families man and my family is my wife and our two best friends and we went and we did Disney and quite frankly your screaming sunburnt three-year-old can never experience Disney the way somebody like me can, somebody yeah. who's spent three decades memorizing the Disney catalog. It's for families, man, and yeah. don't don't discount other people's families. And Wait. magic magic knows no age limit. 
Correct. Listen, as a as a pass holder who tries not to behave like a pass holder, and a, <laughs> and a as of August cast member again, uh, yeah, right. there's. I think the internet has put so much pressure on people having this like perfect giant Disney vacation, mm-hmm. and people are taking their kids so young. They got. I see families there with like between four and six, seven kids, and I'm like. How? Under the age of like twelve, I was right? like, like, "Why what? are you doing this right now?" That like, was like zero fun. Yeah, t- exactly. That's the thing. No one is having fun. Or it's my other favorite thing is the bridal parties where everyone looks miserable because you can tell it's their third day and the maid of honor is a nightmare. Uh, we all have seen those. And they that's also didn't plan properly. They didn't plan properly because that's the thing is I know there's this new trend of people like we're not going to plan anything when we go to Disney. We're just going to go. And I was like, uh-uh. "How do you do that?" I need. I need my three fast passes so I know I'm gonna ride at least three things. And if I'm gonna and if I'm gonna eat, I need that reservation because you're not gonna be able to eat anywhere otherwise. Unless it is a real insider thing. Left to my own devices, I would have been. I gotta say, left to my own devices, I would have been miserable just like that. And it was a huge privilege to have the hookup that we did. And I recognize that. But also, there's a perception about that as well. Like, why haven't you been to Disney World before? Like, we yeah. were standing in line for Rock and Roller Coaster, maybe, and there was like a few like teenage like hotties, like the like Mean Girls. It was the it was the plastics. They were in line behind us, and they were like, "There are all these people here that are like in their twenties and have never been to Disney World. Like, didn't your parents love you?" And like listening to this conversation was so cringy. <sighs> Because we just didn't have the money for it. We didn't yeah. have the money to fly no. to Orlando no. and buy fast pass. Like, we mm-hmm. just, we were, well, mm-hmm. like, I don't want to put my parents on blast, but, like, and they did a great job. But we just, that was just something we never had the money yeah. for. Yeah, my, 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 I mean, my family was the same way. It, it, like, you don't, you don't realize that you're not well off as a kid because your parents are, you know, are giving you what they can and that's what you know. And then so, like, you know, when my grandmother passed away, my my mom was like, cool, we're going to, my, my parents were like, we're going to do this thing. My parents hadn't been since, you know, they worked, uh, or my dad worked for an insurance company where they got to go as part of a conference. And so they, I think they went five times in five years and I went with them once in those five years um but yeah so it's yeah it's one of those things that I think people now especially younger people in an age where and I'm guilty of this where Disney is an Instagrammable commodity um Mm -hmm. that uh you know people take it for granted that it used to be this like once in a lifetime thing that is now not and the whole the whole idea is that like we like when I first worked there in 2013, we still trained to treat everyone as if this might be the only time they will ever come to property. And, and that, I got to say the cast members that we interacted with, every one of them were real life superheroes. These people are the best. They have bought in, they have drunk the Kool-Aid and they're their purpose in life is to make your experience amazing no matter who you are every step of the way people are like you're a grown ass man with a beard and tattoos who's just crying all over Disney World 
dope. Let's yeah. like, let's oh. make this amazing for you. Yeah, I love it. It's the one place where, like, so, like, I turned 30, and no one warned me that part of being in your 30s was that you just cry a lot more because you're way more emotional. And, like, so I, I have started travel journals, and a lot of them, like, when I was in London the last time, was just, like, a, um, you know, something, something was beautiful, or uh, uh, I cried in front of complete strangers again. Um, you know, and so it's one of those, that, like, Disney is a trigger that will always make me cry. I'll cry at a parade. I'll cry at the happily ever after fireworks because they're beautiful. Um, and, you know, I was watching a, a, another movie that I'm recording this weekend for the podcast, and I remember seeing it as, like, a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, uh, when I still dated girls, and, like, took my, girlfriend, <laughs> took my girlfriend to see this movie, and I did not cry. And last night, I was, like, folding clothing, like, crying. Ugly crying. Ugly crying. And, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things. And this is, uh, you know, this movie that we're talking about today, Treasure Planet, is another... One of those films where, like, I remember I've seen it a few times before I watched it for mm -hmm. this, and I always enjoyed it, but, like, again, I think it's this idea that it's, there are these things that work as, you know, dreams and magic and things that, like, it's the, the most lowest common denominator themes we understand as kids, and then as adults, there's so many more layers to unpack mm -hmm. that we can, and, like, to me, this movie really gets that, and it's actually to me, a shining point of this era of Disney films because this is post-Renaissance. You know, they, Disney had gotten some of the best movies out. You know, they were now... This really inner, riding that CG horse, like well, really trying to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, well, and they thing. were riding this entertainment monolith. That, like, they had always been the leader of their kind of genre, but then the Renaissance happened, and they just took it over because they had competition. In DreamWorks well, and the Don Blue Studios and Universal, mm -hmm. we were just starting to get a lot of things. And so Treasure Planet for me is like a standout, a standout film of this time. Well, it was also just post the formative mm -hmm. Disney years for me because I grew up on those on the Aladdins and the Lion Kings mm -hmm. and the Beauty and the Beast, those like hardcore Alan Menken big musical ones. And that was one of the things at Disney World, my friends who know me really well were so surprised that I sang every word to every piece of canned music mm -hmm. that was piped in through like every song played during the fireworks and the shows, I Hell knew yeah. every lyric. Hell and that's yeah. and that's that's the wrap up to the to the that's the short to the initial question you asked me. That's what's so special about it. I spent my whole life idealizing this moment and then when I got there, when I finally got to Disney World, it was everything it was everything you expected mm -hmm. it to be. And it wasn't just about the big splashy ones. I think that films like the Great Mouse Detective and Treasure Planet and these non-musicals that are kind of like B-side Disney like deep cuts still work themselves into the fabric of the whole mm -hmm. Disney brand and Disney experience mm -hmm. and that's why I cried twice last night watching this movie yeah. in front of my puppy well and it's confused. it's one of those things that I love because like when they do Disney Vacation Club like meet and greets and stuff special like they call, they're called Moonlight <laughs> Moonlight Magic events they just did a couple right before the big quarantine, and, like, Jim was one of the characters they brought out. They brought out Kida and Milo from Atlantis. Like, they are these characters Atlantis, that, like, yes. um, they, they are these characters that um, they 
ooh, that like people remember and go, oh crap. And Disney goes, shit, we need characters that we don't have in the parks. Who are we going to pull out? And like, that's the one thing I love is like, when we get these Treasure Planet characters out, um, because they are, they are so great to kind of have this, these, these connections. Cause then people go, oh crap, I want to go watch that movie again. Um, because you know it's just such an interesting connection to uh to their the kind of nostalgia because this isn't a period for a lot of people it's you know it's two years after tarzan which is the end of the disney renaissance um and you know a lot of people were getting a little bit older and things so it's nice to have that kind of connection to this to this property well, something like the original source material for this here, the Robert Louis mm-hmm. Stevenson Treasure Island, very adult themes, uh, very mature, complicated relationships. Oh, yeah. Like, I read it once a year. I read Treasure Island. I love Treasure Island. Oh, and that's something you asked me earlier, why I was drawn to this particular movie. Mm-hmm. And I have always loved, if, you, if your listeners could see me right now, I am obviously a pirate. Yeah. I love any and all pirate shit at all times. I read Treasure Island at least once a year if I can, and I'm currently writing a book about space pirates. Space pirates. I am. Just as like, like it was something I started on my last contract and I just started picking it up again in quarantine and I don't expect to do anything with it, but it's just fun. And also I started watching The Expanse and I was like, oh, somebody's already done it. Damn. Damn, someone's already beat me to it. I mean, there are five original ideas. Like, I was, I've been told this by a design professor, that there are five original ideas, and everything is just a variation. So, like, don't don't cut yourself out. Don't, like, don't... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stay at it. it. It brings me joy, yeah. and I need something to do. Yo, we all need something to do right now. So just for the audience, this will, this will be out in probably about a month and a half, two months, but then we're recording this in the, the beginnings of quarantine and I think day 10 day 11 it's like day 10 day 11 of of um Gabe's in New York so they're under mandatory sequester I'm in Gainesville I'm under mandatory sequester um so yeah it's uh it's it's a time it's really interesting to think about this movie though because just looking at it from like did it do well like on Google it has a 97% fan approval rating um it flopped hard it flopped hard money wise and I want to talk about why before we jump into like the movie um it made a hundred and nine million um uh after a hundred and forty million dollar investment um yeah and but the main reason for that is Disney chose to open it on it's it was like it was a it was the Thanksgiving weekend movie the the beginning of the christmas movie season they released it alongside let me grab it here it was right here um it released like adam sandler's movie came out that same weekend right um oh which one Eight crazy, uh, nights. Eight crazy nights adam sandler's hanukkah movie yeah no or, or close so to it that weekend so this was the fourth in its movie weekend i think it did come out that same year though um it came out the same weekend as Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets. Oh, wow. Die Another Day, which is the Die Hard sequel. And it came out as the same day as Disney's own sequel, The Santa Claus 2. 
So none of that lines up in my brain chronologically. Nope, nope. and it it made a twelve million dollar debut weekend, which is pretty good. But it ranked fourth out of those four movies. Um, but Disney will do this constantly. All you know when when Amazon and we talked about Rescuers, they opened Rescuers Down Under the exact same weekend that they would open Home Alone, or um, you know that they would that Home Alone would open, and then Aladdin right. opened the same weekend as Muppet Christmas Carol. Now Muppet Christmas Carol suffered because of that, but it was also the same day that Home Alone Two opened. So Disney kind of makes themselves go up against someone else. And, like, now that we have the Frozen 2s that are going to make, you know, four and a half billion dollars in box office in three weeks, you know, it's okay. But when you've got... When you've got the Treasure Planets, which, um, you know, uh, the previous year, you know, Dinosaur had come out two years before, which didn't do well. Emperor's New Groove came out two years before. Disney was pumping out movies between um atlantis came out exactly a year before so it feels like they were hedging right like they were saturating the market in the hopes that something would well it's because they were able to go from one movie every two years to a movie a year to then several movies a year um because then you're also so i'm on the d23 website i recommend everybody check it out it's the official disney fan club um but uh you know, they have a full list of the entire filmography of Disney, but it also includes Hollywood pictures and Touchstone pictures, um, as well as Disney Studios, Buena Vista, because everything is under Disney. And so, like, we're looking at, in the 90s, maybe 20 at most, uh, what are we looking at? One, two, three, four. At most, maybe eight to nine movies a year. When we hit 99, 2000, we're looking at 20 movies a year. That's like, and like yeah. they all didn't do amazing. No, but for something like Treasure Planet, like the fact that they were still able to keep up just the quality of mm-hmm. genuinely good art while pumping out that much content is yeah. so impressive. Well, because this is also Princess Diaries had just come out um, the year before leading into it, but like this is the year that like Monsters Inc. had just come out. But we've got things like Lilo and Stitch earlier the same year, wasn't it? Yes, earlier in the same year. So, which to me was the standout of this year. But then you also have like the live action Snow Dogs, which you know it's hard. <laughs> Cuba Gooding Jr. in an animal movie. You had Return to Neverland, which what you know was what I believe the la- one of the last Disney sequels, like to an animated feature that was released in in theaters. Um, you had Lilo and Stitch. You had the Country Bears live action movie. You you had Santa Claus Two. You had uh, Talk Everlasting, and this is back when Disney was doing distribution for the Miyazaki films, so they had Spirited Away. So. Um, you know, this is this is a weird transitional time when I'm not sure the company knew uh, they were in a transition. Um, but uh, but they were still putting out good stuff. They were still like putting the, out good stuff because the, the prom- critical reception didn't catch up to the new well, stuff. Well, and they say that the critical response was good, but on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the aggregated score is about a 69, and the audience at the time was saying about a 70. So I think it's because it was a departure from what made the Renaissance the Renaissance, and people have always been. Um, resistant to the heavier CG movies that Disney has released. 
Um, so this is a beautiful example of what you can do with digital backgrounds and hand-drawn characters on top of it. Um, right. And in hindsight, we can look back and say, oh, it wasn't seamless. Like, it wasn't no. perfect. But at the time, it was gorgeous. Like, don't pretend that you didn't, like clutch your pearls when you saw those space whales going by the ship for the first time. Yeah, well, and even the ships alone are just beautiful. And, like, this is one of those, you know... The Crescent Moon spaceport. Like, the design on this film is gorgeous. The production design is so smart. It's one of the best... It's, to me, one of the best aspects of this film. Um, Because, to me, the humans look realistic in a non-Disney way. Like, they have the enlarged eyes... But um, it's one of those things where, like, I feel like you can realize these people, like the humans, in in an easy way. Like, you could easily... Well, they were all made-up alien creatures, yeah. too. Like, well, they just went nuts, which was well, so and great. That's what I love, is they went a apeshit on the aliens. Because normally, you know, with Star Trek and Star Wars, there is this focus when we have human bodies inside the suits to make mm-hmm. them all humanoid. Where, you know, they didn't need to do that with this we could it was fully animated we could have these unusual looking aliens which i also you don't even see that much in lilo and stitch because all of those aliens whether they're bigger or smaller are humanoid in shape yeah yeah they're generally humanoid um i like the little hell in a bottom carter one that just has like two little arm legs oh yeah you know the other i'm talking about oh yeah 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 Yeah. and so you know this movie you know this is one that i think has to live on in nostalgia and i think nostalgia is what keeps this movie going because the people that love this movie love this movie and what's nice is the people who were younger the nice thing is when you're watching a movie as a kid or even as a young teenager before you're too cool to like things. Yeah. You can get past the things that are like, this is a little bit wrong. This is a little bit jumpy. You know, it's it's why people still love the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. There are yeah, those man. things of all of those rough lines are blurred. But even watching this as an adult for me, this holds up. Well, they also were able to, it's the Disney thing that no matter if it's a lion, an alien, an anthropomorphic dog, they're able to capture such intense human emotion, especially yeah. in somebody like Silver, like the character of Silver, that design, the the cyborg components, mm-hmm. the like his little Benihana knives that he has in his yep. cyborg arm. But then at the end, there's a bit where, oh gosh, they're on the ship, they're trying to get out, and he puts on his like, don't fuck with me face. And he's genuinely terrifying. And then 30 seconds later, he gives up the entire treasure galleon to save Jim. And, like, just the... What a fully fleshed out, believable, relatable mm-hmm. human character Long John Silver is. And that, by the way, is different to the book. In the mm-hmm. book, the the pirates and the good guys come to a... They, they actually... They have a truce, and they find the treasure together, and they leave with it. That's the end of the book. Yeah. Silver still takes some and pieces out at the end, but they where they deviated from the source material was to create this, this relationship between Jim and Silver, this theme of dealing with loss and finding something you didn't expect to find, mm-hmm. and all those great Disney things. Like, I don't think in the entire Disney canon we have another relationship quite like mm-hmm. Jim Hawkins and John Silver, would you say? No, I, I agree with you, I, and um, that we don't. And the thing about him is they, 
worked through the 90s making the villains this brand like which is now paying off because it is a very expensive ticket to go to those villain parties at Magic Kingdom oh the cruise and ship so, show and like, the cruise the ship show, show so and like people it's okay to love the villains but the thing is this is what we're seeing now of you have movies like Wreck-It Ralph 2 Inside Out where there's not even really a central villain because mm-hmm. sometimes the villain is ourselves. And so and so they do this beautifully with Silver, and it's beautifully performed. And despite him being cyborg, he's still so human. And so I think as an adult, I rationally respect and understand his journey through every step that he makes. And he genuinely, like has a familial love for Jim Hawkins, which is why, you know, he sacrifices himself to, to you know, let it... And it's... it's uh, um, you He's know, also not the traditional father figure that no, Jim was looking for. No, and that's He's the whole... An, he doesn't replace his father or his mm-hmm. mother. It's, it's something you weren't expecting. It's, that's one of the big themes for me. And, well, and it's one of those things that it's like, it's that idea of Jim still has family and he, he's, he spends the entire movie taking his mother for granted. And um, I think his relationship with Silver actually makes him appreciate his mother so much more in the end. Um, yeah, agreed. Uh, voiced by the incredible Laurie Metcalf. We'll get to the voice. The indomitable. Is it time? Is it time I think to talk we, about this? I think one of the this things that makes this... murderous row of, like, stone-cold killer voice actors. The, the thing that makes... The thing that I love about this movie is the voice cast. It's one of my favorite things. And I think it's one of the reasons why this movie sells and this movie is such a bop in the way that it is is because of this voice cast. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in his voice acting debut. I love him so much. I love him to this day. I want to marry him. He's so delightful. I'm gonna I'm gonna reach in for a really obscure moment in the movie in the very beginning that extreme sports section. Yeah. Like that time Disney was like X Games, Tarzan, Treasure Planet. But there's that bit where he's I guess he's whatever they call his like little wakeboard thing, and just his little like interjected like woohoos uh-huh. and. It just, like, his voice cracks a lot. And yeah. he's, what, is he 17? Like, yes. it's so good. It's so real and human. And they get that throughout the whole movie. And I was reading up a little, I, like, I know you do a real deep dive, but I did, like, a slightly deep dive just onto, like, the casting process and all the people, all, like, the knockout voice actors they considered for all these roles. And and it's it's got, it's that Emperor's New Groove effect, where if you ca- if you did that same movie as live action, you could have done the same cast. Yep. Like the oh, same easily, cast. yes, yes, you you could have, and that's what I love. This is one of those where they again they treated this as if it was a live action movie because Disney's done this thing, for better or worse, where you know it's it's hard to be a voice actor. It's still hard to be a voice actor, even with anime being as accessible, and there are so many good animated films, <clears throat> films and television properties. Disney's always done this thing where. They fill out the auxiliary cast with voice actors, but then the main cast tends to be film actors, and they they like groom a good voice performance out of them because you know. There's also a fair amount of Tony winners in this cast. We yes, got there Tony are. winner, Tony winner David Hyde Pierce, Tony winner Laurie Metcalf, Tony Tony Winman Martin Short, uh, Roscoe Lee Brown. Big shout out to an NAACP Image Award winner. Uh, and who else? I mean, Brian Murray, the voice of Long John Silver. He, he just dug into that mm-hmm. that Cornwall accent, like that that like that 
stereotypical pirate accent and just really dug into it. He's a South African actor. Yeah. And he talked, I read an interview with him recently where he was talking about growing up in South Africa and his mother not wanting him to have a South African accent. So doing all sorts of dialect work from the ages of seven, eight, and nine. And just digging into that Cornwall accent in a really authentic way that doesn't read just mm-hmm. gar pirate. Mm-hmm. He really did a proper deep Southwest England accent for this character. He's Tony winner, uh, who, well, the two-time Oscar and Golden Globe winner, the indomitable Dame Emma Thompson. I yes. have a confession that anytime Dame Thompson, Dame Emma Thompson, has been on screen, even as an anthropomorphic cat alien, I have a smoldering, devastating crush on her. <laughs> what she does, I am in love with Dame Emma Thompson. She, I mean, well, there's nothing she can't do. She's heartbreaking. She's delightful. Um, even when she does musical theater, I don't care that she can't sing that well. Like, I don't. <laughs> like, her Mrs. Lovett at the Philharmonic was so great. I love her. Yeah. I love her Mrs. Potts. You know, and when she, she was one of the, the better parts of the live action Beauty and the Beast. Like, she's Agreed. just, she's so so good. Like, I just cut to the, the the Love Actually scene where she's listening to Joni Mitchell and crying because she knows her husband, Alan Rickman, is cheating on her. Never forget Alan Rickman. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those, like, she understands her craft, but she also is, like, one of the most delightful human beings. She understands the art form. She just gets it. Um, if anyone out there has not heard of the podcast um, My Dad Wrote a Porno, um, one, you should just listen. You should just listen to it. It is not family friendly. It is very not. It is, it is about what a, it sounds. It like. is a Brit. It is a, a young British television producer who found out that his uh, dad has been writing uh, erotic pornography under the name Rocky Flintstone and been releasing it on <laughs> Amazon. And so he and his two friends, a sassy redhead and a quirky gay, decide to read it one chapter a week. They are on, they just finished book five. Um, Don't they have a, didn't they do they, a live They do several, they do several live shows, but they also do a footnotes episode every week where celebrities who also love the podcast come <gasps> on and Emma Thompson does one of the episodes where she talks about wanting to play the Duchess which I love I just love so much but to hear her talk and her just fine RP dialect and just talk about like (laughs) how ridiculously wonderful this erotic pornography is like I recommend because there's also one with like um uh uh, Daisy Ridley, which is delightful. Um, there's uh, there's a Lin Manuel Miranda episode, which is delightful. That's, what, that's what's going to get me back into that podcast because it's, I took a, I took a break for a while. It was a lot, and I needed a break. It is a lot, but like when I have a doldrums day, they're the only thing that can make me smile. So like that's uh you know putting this in the middle of the episode, I recommend going just for no other reason than also talking about Emma Thompson being Emma Thompson being amazing. And it's, I also think that her relationship with the David Hyde Pierce character, mm-hmm. Captain Amelia Smollett, and Oh gosh, Doctor, what's his name? Doppler, because he's an amalgam mm-hmm. of two characters from mm-hmm. the book, which mm-hmm. is Squire Trelawney and Doctor Livesey. Mm-hmm. Um, but the two of them, their relationship is so strong, and I read a bit and found that they were both heavily involved in the design and development of their characters, which is the least surprising thing, mm-hmm. because they're so strong. She's oh god, Captain Amelia Smollett, what a crush I have on her. 
there's a character in my space novel, in my space pirate novel, directly based on Captain Amelia Smollett. Well, and I was making a bunch of pride t-shirts for people that were like Disney-themed pride shirts for gay days this past year, and I coined the term bicon um, for like uh, my lovely bisexual people out there, and someone, and so we were doing like General solo- Shangley being one, obviously. Yes, sir. Obviously. Uh, yes, obviously. we we stand, but also I didn't realize that like. Queer women look to Captain Amelia as like a queer icon in Disney film, which I am here for. That's the least um, surprising thing I've ever. heard. It is the least surprising thing, but you know, it's it's because you know most of most of my queer female friends love a woman in authority that knows how to wear a car, uh, knows how to wear a suit. Uh, Her boots are hip high. Forget thigh high. Her boots are so high, and oh, it's it, the the characters in this movie are so intelligently designed. Because they are so emotive in a way that animation you don't always get. And this is a thing that outside she has a Cindy of, Crawford mole. Yes, yeah, she does. It's like outside of Disney and Bluth. I don't care what you say. Maybe, uh, like, How to Train Your Dragon might be an exception of this, but no other animating studio, animation studio, gets the depth of character and the soul in the eyes in the way that Disney does. It is something in the devil voodoo contract that they have <laughs> that you can see the soul. And, like, you can tell when it's a it's a main, di- like, Disney Animation Studios versus Disney Toon Studios animating these things. Um, but, like, there is still always this depth of soul and love in the eye, especially in the newer... Um, it's weird to think this is a newer film because this movie's 18 years old, but, um, um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I have students feeling, feeling my age today. Man. Um, oh, please. Every time my students are like, I was born in 2000, I was born in 2001 and I go, ah, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's one of those things that these are all these things that just, Oh, they just lean into how I love this movie. And honestly, I get why in the time that the book was written that they chose the ending that they did with the pirates and the captain and the pirates and the yeah. the military making a truce and standing up to that truce because there there's always been this legacy of an honorable pirate and then when film came along the dishonest pirate and this is the first live action adaptation that Disney made in 1950 which was Treasure Pla- Treasure Island I believe it was yep. 50 um and so you know this is also another one of the most adapted stories in liter- all of literary history. It's one of the most adapted. Um, but this was, I believe, the first animated one. Well, I was. I, I know way too much about pirates, and in the golden age of piracy, uh, people saw very little difference between privateers, pirates. Almost all pirates were ex-military, yeah. ex-navy, who ju- who just fell on to what you might think of as the wrong side of the law over by by chance and they weren't they were very rarely the villains and cutthroats and murderers mm-hmm. that they were made out to be like they got there they got there there was a pirate nation in Nassau in the Bahamas that was poised to take mm-hmm. over all transatlantic trade but for the most part they sailors privateers pirates all had a healthy amount of respect for one another mm-hmm. and in fact a lot of them were employed by the british empire to attack spanish and french ships like there was the lines between between sail between british sailor and pirate were very blurry at the time so the the idea that they would form a treaty and come to an amenable understanding is very in keeping with mm-hmm. what actually happened historically uh, yeah, well, and that's that's also the thing of this idea of 
Um, we, you know, history always is written by the victor. And so, of okay. course, they're going to go back and every nation is going to go, no, pirates are the, en- of pirates are the enemy, these swashbucklers. Um, <laughs> you know, when really most of them were privateering and doing what they were doing because they were poor, their countries were keeping far too much money, they could not mm-hmm. make ends meet, and so it's another example of, like, you know, you had people that, like, became pirates to become pirates or whatever, but, like, you know, you've also got people who are, like, leaving the military and are disenfranchised and have no money and are not being honored for serving their country, so of course they're going to turn around and, um, you know, uh, and do what they did, you know, it's... Um, there is a Stars um, original series called Black Sails for mm-hmm. anyone who likes pirates. Uh, Treasure Island related, but also very historically accurate. Very interesting, very cool. It's like Game of Thrones, but with pirates. Mm-hmm. And it's my whole favorite show. But I think, what, to your point, the reason, they, the reason they changed that ending and changed a couple of things is because Disney and any good storytelling is character-driven, mm-hmm. not event-driven. They got to the end of the script, I'm sure, and were like, oh, this is how it ends because these are the characters we've built mm-hmm. and this is how they would behave and this is what has to happen. And they prioritized a unique and exceptional on-screen relationship between Silver and Jim that was the backbone of this story and they tweaked the story in a way that amplified that and the, the sacrifice... The idea of loss versus sacrifice mm-hmm. is what drives the story. And that moment between Jim and Silver, when he sacrificed, spoiler alert, when he lets the treasure go to save mm-hmm. Jim's life, and what does he say? Oh, it's only a lifetime of dreams, lad, or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think it's also important because any good journey movie... Um, you know, or it's like any good campaign. Not everyone's going to make it to the end, so it makes sense that, like, right. they get into this treasure trove and there are only five of them. Like, that makes a ton of sense, that they've lost the rest of the pirates along the way. They're they're all in this thing. Um, I do also love... I love any good treasure map story, and so oh, I love this yeah. idea that they actually had to go through a portal to get inside of the planet. It's the only way... There are just all these things that are just... They're so right and are just so good, and they lead to like that adventurous, like tugging in the heartstrings of everybody. Oh, and the only reason they can use it is because Jim is the only one who can open it because he's the only one clever and resourceful enough. Right. And that's another theme I wrote down. It's like uh, the idea of money and power and that sort of thing not being the most important attributes, mm-hmm. but cleverness and loyalty and uh stick-to-itiveness and resourcefulness and 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 jim is a misunderstood young you know male character yeah. in a classic way who, who doesn't conform to society's expectations but his gifts are what show out at the end and what end up saving the day well and this is what i really like that disney did in the 2000s uh successfully or unsuccessfully that they flipped the idea of the traditional masculine lead role because even like yeah. a Ala- like even like Aladdin is traditionally masculine in so many ways, and Jim and Aladdin are very you know thing, but like 
you know, because we had Milo in, in Atlantis, who is the opposite of, like, your traditional male action hero. Jim, Jim is the plucky sidekick kind, but, you know, type, but he, in this, this is his hero's journey. You know, we're going to even see, for better or worse, Chicken Little. You're going to see Meet the Robinsons <laughs> during this time where a lot of these male characters are the the men we are told not to be. We're told not, right. we're told to but brawn over brain and be like overtly sexual and misogynized women. And the men that we're seeing in this time period are not necessarily living by those ideals, which Treasure I think Planet is, is devoid of that entirely. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost, um, it's one of those we're going to talk about in a bit, but it's one of those that I think thematically and like when we're talking about problematic or not problematic of how it stacks up, you know, there's not really any cringy stuff in it, which I really liked. And, and it was, you could tell that they were focusing on the story and not purposely like making a woke movie to be woke. Cause this is, I think yeah. a little bit before the aspects of wokeness and being woke, but they told the story in the best way they could. And while, you know, there's only really two female characters in this film, right? They not both, strength. they both have so much strength and so much of their own agency right. and so many things that I think thematically this film just checks out and checks a lot of the boxes of like if I'm a parent these are themes that I want my children to see they're themes that I hold true to and I think it's one of those that it's it's wholesome and delightful but also in a way that like when even if I've seen it before the action scenes and when something bad is happening I still get that knot in my stomach of oh god is this gonna pan out last night I had both hands over my face watching the final chase mm-hmm. scene when they're escaping the, the dying mm-hmm. planet. Oh, it's so good. God, it's so it's good. So it's good. just so good. Um, and I think it, all it would have taken to ruin it was one line like, be a man or something yep. like that. It, w- it would have taken three words to ruin that whole effect. And mm-hmm. they didn't do it. They backed off. They resisted. And the relationship... the. the I think, is this the only Disney movie entirely devoid of a love interest of any kind? Um, Until now. Like, we've started doing that now now, with things. But, yeah, I think in this time period... that point. Yeah, because even, like, the younger boys will have crushes and, like, things... Milo gets Kida at the end of of Atlantis. Um, No such thing. I even think... Now, I have not seen Dinosaur yet. I'm sure we'll have to cover it on the show. (laughs) Um, But I don't even... I've seen Dinosaur. I even even think that he has a a little lady love interest in that. He does. He has a lady dinosaur. Uh, but it's just, just, lady dinosaur. just to bounce back to what you were saying about the total lack of toxic masculinity in this film, there's one moment that gets it for me. There's uh, Silver has a monologue. Um, uh, Take to helm and charge her own course, no matter the squalls, and all of that. And, he sa- and, the, and the end of the line is, um, God, I hope I'm there catching some of the light coming off you that day. And there's tears welling in Jim's eyes, and he just plunks his forehead down onto Silver's belly and they just have this this heartbreaking honest real hug mm-hmm. where you can see Jim's hand grasping mm-hmm. the back of Silver's jacket and it's just such a human moment and they have another hug like at the at the end and I think it might be my favorite two male character relationship in film. Is mm-hmm. there anything better? It's so real. And they need one another so desperately, even though they both think what they need is the treasure. And of yeah. course, 
And that's why, and that's why they let the treasure go at the end. And that's why they deviate from the source material because they have to lose the treasure mm -hmm. to realize that what they actually found is much more valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they still get treasure at the end. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Just a little bit. Um, now, so I have a question for you. We're talking through this. As you've watched this through, because you know the source material, you kind of know the legacy of like pirate films. Is there anything plot-wise in this that you thought doesn't work or something that you would like to see them have tweaked? I um, knew you were going to ask me this, and I was course. having such a hard time coming up with something. Well, and th there isn't always an answer for that, because, you know, for me, I love a good action film, and this checks all the boxes in it a does. way that, like, even while I enjoy the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, which would come out about eight months later, um, I, you know, it's one of those that I... Uh, uh, I don't look through this and go, yeah, I would like this to be different. I would like, because um, it's one of those that I don't feel the 95 minutes. I think it's a level, I think the, I think it clips at a nice pace. Um, really and, and as far as Disney And if movies, I had to come up with yeah. something, that was it. Um, I, and it's just, and that's just me. I could have had another hour of this movie. Mm -hmm. the, in the, in the book, the, um, a good half of the book takes place at the Admiral Benbow Inn. And they they don't get they don't get on a ship for a while in this book. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that takes place before is all very interesting. Billy Bones is at the inn for like a month before the others show up and find him. He's um, he's a great character. There's this great scene in the book where he puts a pile of money down on the bar and says, "Let me know when I've worked my way through that." And and it's an obscene amount of money. And the original joke is that, "Oh my God, more money than you could ever drink through in a lifetime." But he gets through it in about three weeks. Like, there's really... There's great stuff that happens at the Benbow before they ever leave. There's an excellent chase scene in the book when they're leaving the Benbow. And that's and it's hard, It's hardly a criticism for me to say that because I know they got to keep it to about 95 minutes. But I could have done... I could have done with more pre... With more, mm -hmm. with more pre-adventure, with more pre-expedition stuff. Um, my idealized 2020 woke brain thinks that they could have made Dr. Doppler a female character and therefore um, passed the Bechdel test between Dr. Doppler, Dr. Doctor and Captain Smollett. That would have been dope. But, but then the, the, the little... I lied before. The loves, there is a love story between Captain Smollett and Dr. Doppler. And then we wouldn't have had that. We wouldn't have had that absolutely charming B plot right. between the two of them, between David Hyde Pierce and Emma Thompson. Man, I, I just want more of it. And when mm -hmm. I learned that there was going to be a sequel that got canceled, ah, Willem you, Dafoe was going to be Blackbeard, man. Oh, I love that. Though, oh. you know, those straight-to-DVD release movies tend to get the lowest quality priority of anything, and so I, I feel like that... every second of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you I know, it's one of those I second. ultimately... I'm ultimately... Um, uh, I guess I'm a little happy they didn't do it, but at the same time, you know, but that's also, they were they were trying to cut their losses because, again, the company was not doing great again during this time, you know, when you would hit about 2006, 2007, not doing super great. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so strange. I, yeah, I just, I wish I watched this movie more. I wish it was one of those where I would have got set down because I've owned this DVD forever. Like, just ever and ever I've had it. Um, but I had I, that bad yeah. boy on VHS in the big chunky plastic case, yep. man. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, 
Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I agree with you that I understand the 90 minutes because ultimately you are making a movie for kids. You and have the kids, to their attention. Yeah, and you, you want a movie where they're going to have their, their eyes are not going to deviate, which is an old Katzenberg-Eisner thing. And this was getting near the end of Michael Eisner's time. We had a little bit of time left with him. Jeffrey Katzenberg had left in 94. Michael Eisner would be around for a little bit longer. Um into the 2000s, but this was a big thing. But something that was cool, this movie was the first film that was released in IMAX theaters along with a general release. This Can movie, you imagine seeing that in IMAX? I can't, and I wish, and I know that's probably why they did the digital backgrounds, because they could stretch and expanse in a way that, because um, I remember this was a time when they were re-releasing Disney films and adding songs back in, so like, they did, um, so they, re- they re-released Fantasia 2000 quickly right after in sight, because the only places that had IMAX theaters were like science theaters, and they were the real, right. they were the, you know, and so, but I remember we went on a and a mile and a half away from the Liberty Science Center. Right oh, now. It's, so it's so, so cool I remember, I remember, uh, oh, that we went on a marching band trip, and one of the things that we did was we went and saw Beauty and the Beast in IMAX, and it was cool because you could still see the pencil, the pen, all the pencil marks because it was so big. But I can only That's imagine, cool. and so a lot of that they re and so they added Human Again back in for Beauty and the Beast because <laughs> it was doing so well in the musical. And then when they did that with Lion mm-hmm. King a few years later, they did Morning Report, um, and then they would re-release. You know, it wasn't Disney, but they re-released the Star Wars prequels in IMAX as well. But this was the first movie that was released in IMAX along with major movie theaters to get the scope of this and I can only imagine what it must have been like to actually see this in an IMAX theater. It's such a vibrant, beautifully artistically mm-hmm. rendered film. And like I said before, right, like the the switch between 2D and, and CG, hand-drawn and CG, it's not seamless, but you can respect that at the mm-hmm. time, like that was pretty great. And 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 what you sacrificed in Oh gosh, I don't know what you would call it. What you what, what you sacrificed in maybe the the trans the blending between the two, are you more than made up for in just overall vibrance, and color, well, and l- and life likeness, if that's a word. Yeah, Disney does this thing where their world building is second to none, and their immersion is just so fucking stunning. And um, yeah, I just I think it's. I just think it's so much better, and like it's a thing I don't real I don't understand why people were so averse to CGI of this level. Because like you know, in the '90s we were getting those really shitty CGI TV shows. People yeah. were using too much CGI in really bad and cheap ways because it was so expensive. But I don't understand why people thought like we're so averse to this kind of CGI because right. it is amazing i mean well, was was it lion king that was the first blending with the with the stampede if i remember that being a thing the first time um, they used it alongside hand drawn was the stampede in lion king well we used it in Maybe. beauty and the we used it in beauty and the beast for the ballroom the sweeping ballroom um, right but and then it was used in a way in the Great Mouse Detective only, but that was back when Inside you could, Big Ben. Yeah, you couldn't combine them, so they still had to like redraw 
Big Ben, but all the digital animating was done for them in a split second with Big Ben. But um, yeah, so Lion King was the first one where we got like an action scene based on it. Okay. And then, uh, but then you also have Rescuers Down Under, which was completely CGI. None of it was yeah. hand drawn. Well, none of it was drawn on paper. I mean, it was, yeah, it's a thing when people are like, CGI is not hand drawn. And I was like, CGI until the mid 2000s was still hand drawn the exact same way. It was yeah. just done on a computer and not, they were you, figuring it out. Leave them alone. Exactly. And so, you know, it's one of those things of, and this movie doesn't have any of the flatness that traditional CGI animation had. Um, mm. That, like, I just, I don't understand how people can look at this and go, meh. It looks fine. Because even now I go, that looks better than a lot of bullshit that's being put out right now. Like stunning. Uh, oh, God. It, it, like, it just looks art. so good. The um, color palette, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, the color palette is so, it's not bright or flashy. It's very grounded mm -hmm. and it feels real, but it's still so colorful. Like the, the solar sails on the ships alone. That by itself, that whole effect was so exceptional, so well, lovely. And that's not an effect that I feel like we could have adequately gotten with hand-drawn, like specifically hand-drawn. I think they would have had to put some overlay effect on it, which would have ended up costing just as much. And so those ships, I think you need the, the pure grandeur of them. And also, um, I know they, just reading a little bit, there was this aspect of uh, animation and design... Um, called the 70-30 law, um, which is 70% yeah. traditional, 30% science fiction. And this was in visual design, animation, as well as the audio. Um, and so I think it really does cross this beautiful line of, um, oh, okay, so we can't have spaceships, that's fine. Let's put these ships in space. Let's, let's develop, you know, uh, these un talked about force field technology but then you have things because again the x games were huge and disney was capping in on them because michael eisner's son loved the x games things we had this <laughs> you had tarzan you had the extremely goofy movie which would come goofy out about movie, this time yes. um and this was also back when disney had bought espn at this point they had opened the espn wide world of sports at walt disney world and so they were and so they were hosting, I believe it would be like 2003, 2004, they hosted the X Games at Disney World. Like this was the summer X Games. This was just a thing they did. And so Disney kind of bought into that because it's what was so popular at the time. And so, you know, I mean, and even with, uh, you know, we had the beautiful surf scenes in Lilo and Stitch. They were just mm -hmm. those, those moments of, the, I think everything works here. And it's a beautiful balance. The costume design beautiful fucking balance dude it's not spacey in the way that we had just seen in lilo and stitch right. it was actually really fun period costumes using a lot of the same textiles and just textures and that's something else is the clothing is textured in this in a really great way as well mm -hmm. um the tricorn hats the boots the pantaloons I, I like to say that paul taswell uh got high and watched this and then designed hamilton um, <laughs> not yeah, really not sure. really shout out to paul taswell which oddly enough hamilton now a disney property fucking weird world that we live in what yeah disney owns the distribution rights to hamilton they're putting the movie out of the original broadway cast did that happen? Literally, like, three months ago, they announced, because Lynn is part of the Disney Cog now. Lynn is writing a bunch of musicals for them. He's in movies. And so Disney is doing the distribution of that original cast recording. Can't 
can we just give supreme executive global power to Disney at this point? Can we nah, just let it happen? We can't because that would mean we'd have to admit that we have an oligarchy and that we <laughs> live in monopolies. And though in a time of literal pandemic, I don't know. That, that's not what I'm here to talk about right now. But uh, I do want to give a shout out to the audio design on this as well because it was something that when so I heard good. about the 7030 mm-hmm. thing, I, I watched last night thinking about that. And the just a couple points that stuck out to me is there's a scene when the pirates mutiny and take the ship. The oh shut up! There's just sirens everywhere. <laughs> the um, the good guys hole up in the captain's cabin, and at the same time you can hear the charging up of the laser pistols, which mm-hmm. like have a sort of electrical whine to them, and the creaking of wooden timbers yeah. on a ship which I did never realized was present throughout the entire voyage until it was alongside such a futuristic yeah. sound. Silver, John Silver is, they never say it, uh, but in the book, he was the bosun and I won't get into the entire hierarchy of positions aboard a pirate ship at this point but when it's time, when he decides it's time to mutiny after Jim like wounds him in the galley, he comes up on ship and blows a whistle. That is a real pirate's bosun whistle. You can't see it, but that's the sound one of them makes. That is a very, very accurate pirate thing, man. Like, they missed zero details on this shit. They were so, so on point. And then the gravity generator and the sound that makes Mm -hmm. with the wind filling the sails. Like, they they did not miss a trick. They never do, but I still have to, I still have to be in awe of it every now and then. But there are times where, like, this movie is so subtly underscored and so subtly sound designed. Um, And also, like, I'm so sick of steampunk, but, like, this movie crosses that steampunk line. So, like, like to me, Silver is the representation of steampunk because he whizzes, he wheezes in a way that also, like, an old injured pirate does. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is, like, now that I am an old per older person and, Agreed. you know, same, 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 my, same. you know, my body pops when I stand up and, like, <laughs> my back, you know, I, I'm literally in a wheelchair if I sleep in the wrong way. Um, that, like... They mirrored his like the sound of his, the ticking and the clicking and the the steam, the uh, ex- leaving in a way that like also feels natural to someone who's mm-hmm. been through war, who's like lost a leg, lost an eye. That's the thing. Is like well, probably for somebody who works around machinery as well. Yeah, like, yeah. Like all everything is right, and it's so subtle that again you say like, oh, I didn't even notice. But you know what? I think if we talked about it, we would have noticed if it wasn't there, mm-hmm. or if it was just every now and then there was a sound cue. But there's so much throughout this entire. Well, you as a costumer know this, that on any given stage play, if you don't even notice the costumes, the costumer's done their job perfect. Yep. That's what my thesis... And I feel the same way about sound design. If you're not listening for it, it should be perfect. Sound, lighting, costume, scenic. The thing is, I know it's a boring show or a bad show if a review talks about design elements. Yep. One, because it means they bother to look at what our names are. Two, um... (laughs) Two, you know, it's it's one of those that I, yeah, it's uh, my thesis this year was six contemporary costumes with a couple of like costumey elements on a play uh, that's short titled called We Are Proud to Present. Um, it's a really heavy modern piece, and like um, we have this class called THE Two Thousand, which is just intro to theater kind of thing, and all the kids have to write papers. And um, my friends were like, 
No, you know, last year everybody talked about the costume designs of a show I worked on because it was um, by the guy that writes the Sabrina series. It's called Rough Magic. And so yes. it's like the Tempest characters come to our world and it's contemporary magic and the dramatur- there's a dramaturg at the center. It's not, yes, a gra- it's not a great play, but it's so much fun. And so like I had a fish monster and an evil Prospero and Ariel and Sasio, which are these flying fairies that were in leather and chiffon. And everyone talked about the costumes because it's not a great play. Um, our production was, I yes. think, as good as you can get this thing. But then everybody was like, nobody talked about the costumes and the papers for THE 2000 this year and I was like good means I did my job yep you know you know so it's one of those things that I I noticed it because it's one of those things where I go ooh all of these elements are right or the cut of her coat is a period cut Mm -hmm. like you know it's those things that I love pointing this out because I'm hardly a lay person right like I'm Mm -hmm. I'm an entertainment world insider I don't work on the technical side but because I do work with technicians and designers and that sort of thing I always notice it and that's what I always point out to people mm-hmm. and I think there's so much to be gained like like if you just like if, if Treasure Planet did not come across your consciousness at that time and you've never really watched it you, or maybe you watched it once and you're like oh that's a cool movie like even just the most low level Disney flop mm-hmm. has so much going into it there's so much good art happening mm-hmm. there's so many world class artists involved in in even getting this to production, let alone released yeah. in theaters, like people, just, people who aren't in the, aren't involved in the industry, just don't realize how much goes into it. And that's why I always get. That's why I. So I, this is me being elitist, but I call everybody who like doesn't work in something or doesn't understand something. Everybody's muggles now. Everybody's ah! a muggle now. And so I'm just like all of these muggles online screaming about how bad a story is or like how bad this thing looked or like blah blah blah. I was like, girl, just because you can afford to come see a show 15 times does not mean that you get one. How dare you? Because one, you're not in the room during the production meetings. You're mm-hmm. not there for when things are designed. You're not there for those moments when they go, yeah, this isn't working. What do we do? You know, when they're staying there at four in the morning. Um, I just read a little blurb about the audio of when they were trying to work on Ben, the Martin Short character. And they wanted they wanted to him to sound like an automaton, or they wanted him to sound like a robot, and nothing worked because it ruined the comedic timing of Martin Short's performance. Mm-hmm. Well, they, and I, so, I, I gotta imagine they, they pulled a Robin Williams, right? They oh, probably yeah. just gave him a script, put him in front of a mic, and just let him go. Oh, absolutely, because he gets some of those like really beautiful stream of consciousness things. Um, Accidentally locked Emily and the dog out. Oh, uh, oops. <laughs> I was like, oh. So, um, and sorry, so, yeah, let's get No, back you're good. Uh, so, yeah, like, it's one of those things that it... It's, it's, no one's there when those decisions are made. And so, yeah, you can say that, yeah, this thing doesn't work aesthetically because you have this surface periphery idea of what it's supposed to be. But, like... People, especially the internet, the fans are now allowed to just be so 
uh, controlling of a of a source material, and I know I'm I'm bad about this as well. But like, for the you, record, view, uh, viewers, listeners, I'm rolling my eyes hugely. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where people now, because things are so accessible, people feel they have ownership over something they like, and they mm. don't actually. This is a big thing about Disney Parks things too. That like the parks fans just feel like there's this ownership, and they they have this thing because they own it and they love this thing, and like that's just. That's not what any of this is about. That's not the thing. That's not. And so it's, uh, you know, that's the moment of sometimes when things don't do well um, are because an audience is not kind of, they're not giving it the opportunity to be good. Like they're not going to give it the opportunity. I get in fights about Star Wars a lot because Uh, of this. And I just, I am a Star Wars stan. I love all things Star Wars. I will watch everything Star Wars mm -hmm. and love every second of it. And when I got out of the theaters from Last Skywalker and I just shouldn't have gone on Facebook because everyone just trashed it. And my response to that is, did you see that shit? Did you, did we just watch the same movie? Mm -hmm. It's a Western space opera. What did you expect? It looked, it was beautiful. It had amazing acting performances. What do you want? They had fucking horses, like literal alien horses. You know, it's one of those things that like. Somebody put those horses in costumes. Yeah. It's amazing. While I. On a green screen. Yeah. Like there, while, while I didn't necessarily agree with everything in that movie. Yeah. In the same way, I'm also like. Mm -hmm. These movies take, like, three years to plan, and, like, I don't, I, uh, you're not in the room, you're not there, you haven't been around when it was being designed and worked on, so, like, while you might not like something, it's not your place to go and trash it, because you know what, people are going to listen, and they're not going to go, they're not going to go see something because of what other people online are saying, or they'll illegally download it. It's the best art in the world. It's the best art in the world. There's nothing better. There's no better comprehensive, fully realized artistic piece than a theatrically released, for example, Star Wars movie. There is nothing that takes more work and more money and more expertise. Well, and like, jokes on us, Star Wars has never been particularly good. I've been rewatching the original three. I've been rewatching the original three and the sequels and then going through the new stuff and all the supplementary stuff. And like, while we've gotten good Star Wars stories, like Clone Wars, I think is lovely. The Mandalorian is lovely. Um, And while I now go, okay, so maybe this is this is the structure we should be focusing on Star Wars, not three three hour movies. Maybe we should be focusing on 12 one hour episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's one of those things that, like, those original movies were novel, and there was nothing like them, and they were groundbreaking. And that's why you Uh, loved them. Yeah. Because they were good art, and and they were new. And they don't have to be the best things ever for us to love and enjoy them. And there can be things that aren't for you, and you still love a franchise. Like, I've had franchises that did things I didn't like, but, like, I still stuck with them, and I loved them. Um, you know, but it's well, one of those so this things whole that... idea of uh, of a cinematic universe and this mm-hmm. s- such comprehensive world building that's still in its infancy. Well, comic books have been doing it for decades, but like, but apart from that, like, we're still like Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is everyone's still chasing them, mm-hmm. and well, Star Wars is still chasing them, and yeah. we're gonna get there. But like, you are on the like while you're tapping away on your keyboard, trashing George Lucas for Jar Jar Binks, sure. Jar Jar Binks is a trash character, but we're still, you're still on the frontier of something that has never been done in history and that we've never had the technological capability or social wherewithal to do. Like, just appreciate it. 
Yeah, also, they created the technology for most of the original three Star Wars movies yes. that we still use today. Yeah, and that's a thing of it's... it's um, Groundbreaking. Every there's, uh, yeah, there's always going to be missteps along the way, but like... It's turned into a Star Wars podcast real yeah. fast. <laughs> but you know, it's Crush a thing. You, you know, you bring up... Uh, well, you know, it's two different kinds of space stories. Of course. Um, and, um, you know, we couldn't have a space story like... Star Wars, they are like the old pirate stories. Like, literally, the Millennium Falcon, there's so much of, like, Long John Silver and Blackbeard in Han Solo. Like, they all... Everything informs everything else. And so, like, you bring up the MCU, where in a comic book, like, when they did the original Civil War run of the comic, or they've done Secret Wars, you can have 27 individual comic book titles that all play into that. So there's the one main comic, but then you also have everybody else's periphery comics. Where in an MCU movie, you've only got the movies to lead into it. Yeah. So, and like, again, while Avengers Endgame and Infinity Wars were messy in many ways and were so fun to watch and so good to watch, there were some missteps. But like... I want to see any of you who can't even write a um, write a Facebook status without like spelling and grammatical errors or like your the thoughts don't make sense. I want to see you write a movie with literally sixty seven named main characters in them. Like this is a moment where I go, you have so much entitlement that you need to step away, and it's not fair. And manage twenty A list personalities at on every day of shooting, like. Oh my gosh! And that's the oh. big one, right? Like, could you do it? Yeah. Could you better? Like, that's art. That's art. I was at a, I was at an art museum one time. <laughs> Little bit of a tangent. I was a camp counselor. And we took the kids to an art museum, and the the docent of the art museum said to the kids, "Art is what happens when somebody makes something, and somebody else looks at it and says, I could do that, and doesn't." Yep. That's it, man. It's art because someone else is doing it, and not you. So. Do you want to have fun or do you want to get mad online? It's meant to be fun. It's not meant to be perfect. Yeah, if you think you can do it better, go write a fucking script. There are go so many it, unproduced scripts right now. Like, that's also the thing is, like, because I work, we work in the industry, so we actually, like, are watching our writer friends grueling. And so this is not going to be a call. This is not to call out this movie because I'm sure it's going to be great. But it's like, why do we need, you know, in a year where both In the Heights, the film and the West Side Story remake are both going to come out. And now we have no idea when In the Heights is going to be released because of COVID. (laughs) Um, Sad face, It has to be released. It has to be released. It was the only thing I was living for right now. And so, like... Did you work on In the Heights with us or just hair? Just, I was not there for the In the Heights year. I worked with you guys on... on, on, I I was not there for the In the Heights year. I worked on hair with you all. In Um, the Heights is very intensely personal for a lot of people. A lot of... Well, it was... It was uh, when I came to visit New York before I moved there. We saw Broadway and Bryant Park. It was June. It was just after the Tonys. They had just announced that In the Heights would move in March. And so the Off-Broadway cast was doing the Off-Broadway version of In the Heights at Broadway and Bryant Park. And I saw it and immediately went, my friend Tara and I looked at each other and said, oh, we have to see this show. And then I was at Scamda and it was one of those, like this was back when nobody was buying tickets to the show in previews. So like, I think we got $55 orchestra seats, which nice. listen, that was 12 years ago, $55 orchestra seats for previews. 
You can't even get a rear mez seat for Lin-Manuel Miranda show for $55. That's, fiction, that's, no, that's, that's science fiction. That doesn't happen. Um, oh, yeah. Well, and like outrageous. after Richard Rogers, there's this uh, there's this cut in the middle of the orchestra where you go up to rear orchestra or go down to the pit, the, the front orchestra. And we were in like the, the last two rows of that. So I'm, st- I'm literally 10 feet away from that stage. And like I wept through most of that show. And I think I... I think I saw that show more times than I've seen any other show on Broadway, which when you're living in New York and that was back when Rush and Lottery were still $30 for most things. Ooh. And so on a, and in the Heights did a Sunday night show. So you could go and rush that on a Sunday and, you know, go. But I think I probably saw that show eight or nine times. I saw every Usnavi that came in the show. Like, but yeah, it's, it's one of those, like in a time, like we, it's like, why produce a La La Land or Greatest Showman or Ugh. a remake or a remake of West Side Story? You and I differ on Greatest Showman. I do love Greatest Showman. Like, I, I know you got, you got big beef. I know the you got beef. Music's a bop. I'm going to do a whole side. I don't know for what podcast. <laughs> I'll do a whole side episode about how angry I am at revisionist white history. I hate it so much. I'll debate, I'll debate um, you on The Greatest Showman. I do um, love I also Showman. don't like Pascal Paul. They just, their scores don't do it for me, except for, except for Dog Show, or Dog Fight. I love Dog Fight. Um, but, uh, yeah, Pascal it's just... Paul hit and miss for me. Yeah. Uh, they're they can too be pretty, they can, they, are, they can be atonal. They are too trendy. Um, uh, and I'm tired of baritone singing Waving Through a Window. Tired of it. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so to, to kind of get back on that tangent of we see our friends who are writers and are trying to create their own work and getting their musicals produced, getting their plays produced, and it's all literally about what's going to make money instead of what's going to have heart and what could eventually make money. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a shame that, like, the, you know, these are the things that are happening now, but this is what no one online is realizing that, like, just because you have an opinion doesn't mean someone has to listen to it. And it also, you know what? Opinions are like assholes. And much like I say on my grinder profile, I don't need to see yours. Ha! So like, I, it's like, sometimes it's like, I'm really bad about keeping my opinion to myself sometimes. And I try now I try to be constructive also. Cause like the cats movie was a disaster, but I have three friends on Facebook who I've worked with who are in the cats film. So like, I need I to be respectful. I want to. Like, well, yeah, it's, it's like, going to be a streaming suit. But I, yeah, and that's the thing is like, we work on a show and uh, have anybody that's out there that's a theater person, you've worked on a show that's, even though it's not a good show, um, or it's not the best show, everybody put in so much work to make it the best work that it could be to have people come and just tear it apart and trash it. It is so gutting. And so I think fans really need to look at that. Like, or it's even like how we look at celebrity culture and how we look at celebrities and, um, because their lives are just so open to us because of the internet. Um, like there was somebody on my Facebook that went, it was a, a, an article It's and it's an unfounded article about how Harry and Meghan are having issues now in their marriage and, and, um, and someone was like, and they were like, Harry needs to divorce her. That girl was never meant to be royalty. She just doesn't have what it takes. And I was like, I was who like, asked you, I was also like, you live in a tiny ass Southern town who you have no taste. What the fuck do you know about what it takes to be a British Royal? Because we know nothing about the British Royal. And so it's one of those things that like to this fault of like, I think there were a lot of movies that like, 
you know, and the, you were, it's like every season, how many theater shows close because Ben Brantley gives them a bad review. Nobody goes to see it. <laughs> um, you know, or so and it's one knows of the, what he looks like, man. Also, like, Ben Brantley, like? before he was working for New York Times, had no background in theater. That man only knows theater because he's watched so much of it now. But he is like, if he was like a sports writer or a food writer or something, like it was something that's the game, he had, man. that, well, and that's the thing is I was like, why has this man been dictating what runs, what wins the Tony Awards and what don't? Like, I, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, to, to go back to Treasure Planet and kind of movies yes. like Treasure Planet. And it's almost to the point of what I brought up in our uh, my Atlantis episode too. People, like, these are two movies that are on the lower end of the appreciated spectrum of this time because people let what critics said or what their friends said affect if they saw this movie or not. Yeah. And now, like, it's just... Well, now we find ourselves at such an unprecedented point of history where all we have is the internet. We're all mm-hmm. sitting at home trying to find stuff to watch. If if I can say anything to anyone, it's everything out there, every piece of art that has been produced to the point where you can watch it in your home has something to offer. Don't write things off. Find the hidden gems like Treasure Planet mm-hmm. because they have so much to offer. It's all such good art, man. And right. if it's trash, what? You lost You lost an hour and a half of your time when you would have been just scrolling through Facebook. Go right. consume art, people. There's something to be offered in all artistic endeavors. There's something to be gained from them. And honestly, right now, we're in quarantine, which means, you know, I'm working a lot right now. A lot of people are hopefully still working from home. But I'm seeing a lot of people that are like, I am so bored. What do we do? And I was like, go consume it media that you would never like right now you can get met operas for free you can walk through museums digitally without having to bump into other people i can go look at like really beautiful things at momo without having to hear pretentious nyu students talk Uh, you know (laughs) you can watch theater that you've missed like the national theater live just announced today that they're making a lot of their programming free on youtube and I the National that. Theater in London has made some of the most exhilarating, wonderful art that I've ever seen in my life. And even bad, even shows that I've seen there that are not that great are still better than most things I've seen in America. And so, you know, this is the opportunity to, you know, give us so a PBS has on their streaming service. You have to have a membership, but a membership can be a one-time donation for as little as $1, which means right now they have 21 Broadway shows. They have 100 dance pieces, 200 operas, all of these things that you can access for a literal single dollar donation for the next year. And so this is that moment of maybe you need to not watch Friends again don't put the office back on. Yes, I'm calling all of you out. Go and watch something that maybe, so like, heaven forbid, you fall asleep. It's fine. You didn't have to waste a $50 ticket on it. But you're getting to partake in these things like, and no, like, not many people saw Indecent when it was on Broadway. You can now go watch it on PBS and it is a beautiful play. You can watch the West End Kinky Boots. You can watch the tour of American in Paris. There are just these, these things, or with Disney Plus, this is the opportunity to go back and watch things that you never watched before and like bring a new light and new love to these movies to show Disney that it's like ultimately 
it might be, you know, 20 years later, but I'm glad you made this movie. Thank you for making this movie. Please keep churning out things that might not make a billion dollars tomorrow, but that mm-hmm. will mean something to people for years and years and years to come. That will stay a part of their lives. Because the nice thing is the company, Bob Iger, for his faults, has been letting the company, you know, for every... You know, because they have the Frozen 2s that make billions of dollars, they have Star Wars and Marvel, they're willing to make a couple, you know, they're willing to make some of these things along the way, which is really nice. And while, you know, so this kind of spends me into our our next spot of while um, I don't necessarily love that everything's getting a live action reboot, it's not working for a lot of them. They've greenlit this to be a live action reboot. Is that for reboot. sure? It is, it is for sure. This and Atlantis both. And oddly enough, Tom Holland has been tapped for Jim and for Milo, or the rumor is. Easy. But do, he's. Do, let him do both. He, well, and let like, him do both. He, I actually think he is perfect for Tom. For, for Jim, he is <clears throat> such a vibrant Spider-Man. His Peter Parker is so lovable. I just saw Onward. Um, by the time this is out, it will be on Disney+. Plus. I recommend everyone stream it. It is the most beautiful familial brother relationship movie. Right. Because when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, cute. And then I heard you rave about it, so I'm excited for that. Because they do this thing, because I don't know if a lot of people know, when a trailer is made, the the theater, the, the company turns over footage, a certain amount of footage, to a marketing company. And those marketing and production companies are the ones that build the trailers. And so, like, for a Marvel movie or um, a Star Wars movie, they're only allowed to use certain scenes and then the first 30 minutes. Or, like, for the Marvel movies, they film Mr. X. They film fake scenes in order to pad a trailer out so you don't actually know what's happening. Yeah. And that's why... So that's why with Endgame, uh, we only saw, like them in their like time travel suits that's all we saw of them we, we didn't also see saw, a lot else we also saw tony stark uh in his ship thinking he was going to die but he wasn't computer emaciated in the trailer right exactly yeah i thought that was very interesting so there are all these things that they will shoot mr x or also a lot of things happen in post-production and so i this is one of those where i go you need to put star wars mo- level budget into making this movie because yeah. um because like, take a shot on shit that's not guaranteed to return a trillion right. dollars. Take a shot on stuff it, and put some money behind something that could be really great in quality without the name, without the buzzwords, without the brand. Take a shot. Take well, a and like, um, um, you know, uh, generally this movie has enough of a... This movie has enough of a fan following that, like, I think... It would be able to sell it on its own. I don't have a problem with with this kind of thing. I think it would be lovely, actually. So well, now they're going to be raking it in with Disney Plus, so they'll be able to do whatever they want for right. The well, and they're also going to be making things specifically for Disney Plus. So, but this is one where I think I would like to see them give it like a full major motion picture release budget. That would be dope. But I could also sit and watch this on my laptop screen, right? Easy. Absolutely. Like, I would be very happy to do that. So, so Gabe, if we're talking about, so we're, you know, we like Tom Holland. I like Tom Holland, and I would like to yeah. see them actually. This is a movie where they don't need to change much, and so honestly, they could almost take the exact same script and make it work. Um, mm-hmm. Who, who would you like to see cast in this? Because I have some. Because I have some ideas. So my so. Yeah, give me yours and let me think about. So Alexander Skarsgård as Silver. 
Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, yeah. Got, he's got the little bit of that lumpy face. He was in, he, you know, contractually, I don't know if he still has, because um, he was uh, in the Pirates franchise. I don't know if he still has um, movies uh, to do with Disney. Um, you know, uh, Forrest Whitaker also pr- could probably do it. I don't know if he'll get into the camp of it, because there is, the thing with, Silver, is there is a camp factor that you really need to embrace? Mm-hmm. Um, you got to go for it. You got to do the yeah. priority R shit. But for me, Skarsgård has this look. He and all of his sons have this unusual look to them um, that I feel like he could he could do that. Um, you know, it's hard because a lot of the people I think to, I go, okay, well, how could this l- live within a realm of like? Um, Disney contracts. Um, mm. uh, and so, you know, uh, there you are... You know who I could see for a John Silver? Who? Deep cut. How about a J.K. Simmons? Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. I don't know if I've yeah. ever heard him do any dialect work, but I bet he's amazing. Oh, I feel like he can do anything. Um. Good Lord. I'm like a block away from a school and two blocks away from the police station. And four blocks away from the fire station, so my my neighborhood is just sirens at all well, times. It's also, you know, it's also New York, so like I believe it. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, but yeah, it's it's that thing. Yeah, I think he could. I think he could absolutely do it. Well, because J.K. Simmons is so good. He's, um, yeah, he's so good. Well, and not to spoil. For anyone who hasn't seen Far uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home, he has a lovely cameo in that movie, and not in a role that I'm going to talk about. But he has a lovely cameo, um, nice uh, in that film of a role that he has played before. Um, Ooh, you know, Keith David is Mr. Arrow. How about that? Keith David. Keith David. Disney darling. Oh yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. He absolutely could. Yeah. I'm oh, trying yeah, to think of somebody like like an Emily Blunt for Captain Smollett. Um, hear me out. Um, uh, Denea uh, Guerrera from. Oh, Walking I knew Dead you would get and, me. I knew you would get and, me for whitewashing. And, I knew you'd come Black in with Panther. a better. Yeah. Well, I love Emily Blunt, but that's an easy one, and she's in everything. Slash, she's also probably going to join Marvel soon. But she, Lupita, I could see Lupita or Denia Guerrero. Um, also, just because Denia from, especially just from watching her as Michonne on Walking Dead, mm. and and as Okoye, she is so regal, and I think she one, I think she could wear a prosthetic well because I would want it to be a practical makeup effect. Okay. Um, and two, I think she has the stance and the strength of being able to do that. Also, I think she would look just fire in that uniform. Um, There's an actor from The Expanse that is not a huge name that I know that I know a lot of people don't know. Her name's Frankie Adams. She's a she's a, a Samoan New Zealand actor. She plays um, Sergeant Bobby Draper on The Expanse. Oh yes. She's one of the. She's about six feet tall, and she's just this statue of a woman, who is so strong and has such presence. I'd love to see more of her, and she'd be a. She'd you know, be a she she is twenty six years. She is twenty six years old. That's gross, and I'm mad about it. Yeah, because she's born in nineteen ninety four. I am fear. I am mad at that. <laughs> um, yeah, they're just they're. Oh, there are so many ways we could go. Now, my question for you is: Would you mm. want to see? Would you want to see them keep morph? Would you want to see Morph stay in the movie? 
he just my right off the bat I'd say yes because it was just such a great like departure from the parrot because he's meant to be the parrot Captain yeah. Long John Silver always had a parrot on his shoulder and he was so delightful and cute and fun in 2D and I don't know if it would translate it would be very cool to see what they would do but I almost would like to have like a little anthropomorphic a, like solid alien like voiced by Alan Tudyk mm-hmm. right like didn't Alan Tudyk do more no that was somebody else no 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 Alan Tudyk didn't no because Alan Tudyk wasn't in the Disney uh, he was Alan Tudyk he, was he would have str- been young then. he was he struggling at this point well no 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 he was he doing done, dodgeball at this point and I believe he had done Firefly already and okay and he was about to do uh Knight's Tale so he was emerging into all of us. Yeah. I had the biggest. I had the biggest crush on him at this point. Um, but uh, the, the thing with Morph is, I think the strength of Morph is he is he's such a great plot point for when he disguises himself as the map and hides the yes. actual map back on the ship, which gives Jim a reason to go back to the ship because in the book Jim goes back to the ship to scupper her and like and buy and like wound the pirates and buy more time for. Captain Smollett yep. and the crew and that was such a great twist to get them to get him back on the ship to go retrieve the map and well and I mean honestly Disney always likes plush sales like in every yeah. Disney mo- in every animated movie there's always something to sell plush I remember having a morph plush because he was on clearance at the Disney store um, and I'm mad I got rid of him now I went to I was like I've got to have this somewhere and I went nope I do not um, I mean, sure, give me more. It would be cool to have another Stitch-type, like, companion. Like, yeah. anthropomorphic animal companion that was less a glob of pink goo. As yeah. cute as Morph is. Yeah, well, I agree with you. And he would be able to be the droids. He'd be able to be the BB-8 of this movie. Right. Because, um, honestly, they could sell so much merchandise of him. Because, also, as we're looking through this, it's got to be, like... They've got to heavily be able to lean into the merchandise for it, and so. Um, and he could still be a shapeshifter without being like an amorphous pink blob, right? Right. Like, he could be well, a shapeshifting if, creature of some kind. Well, because well, he could. They could go a little more animal with him, and he could be yeah. like, if you like, think about like a little pink combination of like a parrot and a, a penguin, and maybe he can float but not fly, mm-hmm. and so he's a little derpy. Um, but is lovable. Derpy. Yeah. Well, the reason I went straight stuff. to Stitch is because there's an Easter egg in the first scene in Jim's bedroom. There's a little Stitch doll on mm-hmm. his shelf. Mm-hmm. And it came out like a few months after Lilo and Stitch. Right? Oh, they do that all the time, though, because like it's in Frozen so cool. 2, in Frozen 2, there's a Baymax. Elsa makes a Baymax and like young Elsa yep. makes a Baymax. Yeah, and, and Snow there, you know, Disney is so self-referential. Like, that's just the thing they do. Um and the, the, the short answer to your question is they could very easily put Morph in just as he was, but I also think it's an opportunity to try a little something different. Yeah. I think he should definitely be a shapeshifter, for sure. Oh, yeah. that's he a, has to be. Because that feeds the plot so, so well, and it's so, and it's so different to what we'd seen before. Yeah. I, I agree with you. You could also um, take Barbosa's monkey and just slap him in there and it'd be great, because Disney, like, yeah. why not? Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, Gabe, as we, uh, before we go, I would, I would just like to, uh, hear more of, of your, uh, what was, what was it like 
being kind of walking into property for the first time as a 30 something year old kind of feeling the magic of Disney in a way that like you don't understand until you're there. Yeah, and you don't understand unless you've grown to adulthood. Right. Wanting to go to Disney your whole life and never getting to. I think the best way I can describe it is I spent we were we did 5 days there and I spent every second of every day trying not to get my hopes up too high so that I wouldn't get let down, mm-hmm. trying not to expect that they would nail Edward every aspect and it try not to expect that it would be perfect every step of the way trying to manage myself and pace my emotional journey mm-hmm. and just every step of the way being overcome and it it, they, it was everything and it, I tried to keep myself from expecting everything every step of the way mm-hmm. and I got everything every step of the way nothing disappointed Nothing was less than or different to what I expected, and it it is what it's what it's meant to be. It is the most magical place on earth, and it's magical no matter your engagement with Disney. And for I have to have been, if not the not I wouldn't say something like the hardest customer because obviously I love all things Disney and I'm ready to love everything, but no one could go into Disney World or Land having higher expectations than a 32-year-old Gabe Martinez did and and just above and beyond every step of the way I can't say enough about the cast members I don't think I could do it because my love of Disney is such that I think that seeing too much behind the scenes peeking too much behind the curtain might ruin it for me or take something away from it for me and I just have so much respect for everything that goes into making that place what it is and if I could go back every weekend for the rest of my life I would do it and I think it would I I feel confident saying that it would be just as magical every single time yep uh, now, you all did, went before Star Wars opened, right? Before Galaxy Edge opened? Ah, we did. We just missed it. So you're going to have to come back and visit me, and we'll go do Star Wars, because I have to tell you that the new Rise of the Resistance ride is... I think that I'm ready. We did Star Wars things at Disney World. They had some Star Wars things. Maybe at They Pinterest. did have some Star Wars things at Hollywood Studios. There's Star yeah. Tours, and they had, like, launch band things, but there's the full land now that is open. Right. We missed it by a couple of months, and... Yeah. You'll have to let me know when it's calmed down. Are the lines still, like, yeah, to, to even get in? Are they still outrageous? Well, it's just hard because, like, you have to go early to get the boarding pass for Rise of the Resistance. But then otherwise, like, it's busy, but it's not unmanageable. Um, we're, saving but... our, we're saving our hookup for, for Galaxy's Edge. Like, the next time we call in that favor, it'll be probably for Galaxy's Edge and nothing else. Yeah. Like... I would say one whole day, nothing but Galaxy's Edge, and then we'll go hit Magic Kingdom another day. If you, if you, if a good, a good, um, a good time to go is middle of September. It's a really good time to go, and the end of January. Are we going to be back to life by then? I hope so. I'm supposed to start working in, there in August, so I hope so. But the the problem is, uh, a lot of us don't know. Like nobody really knows what's happening, and everybody's just trying to kind of keep it going. So uh, we'll see Hang what happens. There. Hang in there, everyone. Well, 
Gabe, thanks so much for being on the show with me today. Yeah. This has been so wonderful, so informative. Uh, we packed a lot in for 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 the audience there. Um, so uh, you are doing something really interesting that I'm actually going to post on our Facebook page before people get to meet you. Uh, right now during the quarantine, Gabe's been going live at five every day and doing like a sing a cabaret concert for everybody and it's absolutely amazing um and so other than that uh do you have anything else kind of coming up after the quarantine or you know i know? really don't we're still um we we're still making the transition back to land life because as i mentioned we i spent the better part of seven years on cruise ships so new headshots firing up the old resume all of that right now my all my gigs have been canceled so we're just doing this man we're going live and by the way look look for me if when if i'm still doing this when this comes out but if you're in quarantine you have friends and friends of friends that are doing live concerts from their couch that are as good as anything you'd have to buy a ticket to see most of us put up our venmo or a cash app and just say please drop a buck if you can Mm -hmm. it's a tip jar um, we are, th- this will be, this will probably be long gone by the time this comes out, but my wife and I are participating in something called Live from Quarantine, and there's a um, community of New York actors, uh, and they're doing it like a variety show. Um, there's a host, and they're kicking it over to different people, so look for stuff like that. Whenever this comes out, stuff like that will still be happening. Support independent artists. We need it. You need something that's not friends for the 15th time. Like diversify man (laughs) well where can I have nothing else to push but um, where can people find you online Gabe ooh put me on the spot I am Gabe Martinez on Facebook that's where I'm doing all my live stuff I am at Gabriel Wings official on Instagram Um, you can just search Gabe Martinez on YouTube I'm gonna be putting up some more stuff now but um yeah find me i i I, i'm not very good at diversifying my uh social media so i kind of have a different name on everything but uh start on facebook that's where my lives are if you like what you see i'm doing disney requests part two this very evening so i hope to see you there maddie i will do you have anything do you have anything you want to hear tonight Oh, I would love if you could do some Friends on the Other Side from uh, Princess and the Frog. Ooh, you got it. I'm going to go learn it right now. Thanks, babe. I appreciate it. Love you, Maddie. Well, it was so good I to see you. your face. It's good to see you, too. So, I'm so excited to do this. It was so fun. Absolutely. Everyone, if you haven't already subscribed and you're just dropping in, subscribe. This guy will keep coming out with quality Disney content. Let's cross-promote like my thing tonight for sure because yes. all my Disney friends who don't already listen to this podcast will become lifetime dreamers once they do. I love that. I love that. Well, thanks again. Can you believe we've been friends for seven years? And it all started because I compared you to Alana the Lioness. Tamara Pierce really set the tone of our friendship. A love of magic. Briar Moss. Fantasy. Briar Moss. Powerful women, and of course, Briar Moss. Moss. I'm Anna. And I'm MJ. And we invite you to join our Circle of Friendship, where we do a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Circle of Magic series by Tamara Pierce. We answer important questions like, how does Moonstream let certain dedicates take care of children? Can you imagine anyone else but Mandy Patinkin playing Nico? Knives, Briar. And Knives? Join us every other Monday at cofpodcast.libsyn.com or wherever you download podcasts. But seriously, Knives...
Thank you, as always, for listening to the Dole Open Dreams podcast. June was Pride Month, but because of COVID-19, Pride festivals and marches have been canceled across the country. So here at Dole Open Dreams, it's Pride Summer! On our Teespring, we have some fun Pride items that we are selling through the end of August, and all the proceeds go to the Alley Forney Center in New York, as well as the Center for Transgender Equality. We are introducing in collaboration with Limerick Oddities, all one word, on Etsy, bag clips, a trading pen, stickers, uh, all for Dole Whip and Dreams, and 100% of the sales from our Dole Whip Pride bag clip. It's super cute. It's a little rainbow cup. We'll go to the Okra Project, uh, which is a coalition helping trans people of color, as well as One Pulse um, in Orlando. The link for both of these can be found on our social media on a link tree on our Instagram. A big thank you to Certain Point of View Media for having us on your network and the support of all the amazing creative people there. As always, you can find us across all social media on Facebook at Dole Whip and Dreams Podcast, on Instagram at Dole Whip and Dreams, on Twitter at Dole Whip Podcast, and even on TikTok at Maddie Lime. I want to thank Firefly, Lex, Sasha, Jared, Case, Katie, Jesse, Rob, Heather, and all of our amazing patrons over on Patreon. We have some huge upcoming projects, and the Dole Up and Dreams family is growing at an exponential rate. We'll soon be offering a movie musical podcast, a cult cringeworthy movie podcast, a limited run series about the Tudor wives as we take a deep dive into the true crime genre. Check out our Patreon and subscribe for only $2 or more a month, where you will get an exclusive new content early, video content of the reopening of Disney World, as well as discount codes and free merchandise exclusive just to our patrons. A huge thank you as always to David White, our audio editor, Angela Gwynn, our research assistant, and Brett Eagleton from the Let's Rewatch podcast for the music in today's episode. Now until next time, may your days be filled with dull whip and dreams. CPOV CertainPOV.com